Uh, and I think since healthcare passed, everything that would have made a lot of us oppose it because we didn't think it was pulled down cost has, uh, that case has been strengthened. It's been strengthened by the Medicare actuary who came out again with a, a, a study saying after it passed it will increase costs. A RAND Corporation study saying healthcare inflation will rise 1% a year faster than it would have without the bill. I've heard actually more doctors say I can't operate under this bill since it passed than I did before, as people begin to factor in how they're going to try to operate. And so to me, that belief that a bunch of smart people can organize 17% of the American economy, soon to be 20, soon to be 25, uh, is, uh, is a, a myth, and that within a few years, the impracticalities of it, even if they get most of the stuff right, if they get 20% wrong, uh, it will create a uh, holy mess. And so I think we'll be dealing with this issue quite a lot for that Several comments. First of all, just talking about the Congress itself. They, uh, I'll be leaving after this year. In 17 years. And I've confessed to a considerable amount of disappointment in the level of discourse in the Congress. Uh, notable lack of thoughtfulness Just the week before you got there, it was, it was like Socrates, it was like the symposium. <laughs> uh, you know, first, let me, you mentioned Pat Moynihan. He has one of my favorite quotations, which is the, which summarizes what I was saying at the beginning, which is the central conservative truth is that culture matters most, and the central liberal truth is that government can sometimes change culture. And I, I just love that quotation, so I always say it when I can. Uh, you know, I, I've watched politics from the outside, and. Uh, I, from the outs, from the House and the Senate, from the outside, what's so striking is the power of teams, uh, and that politics is a team sport. You don't get anything done alone. But if you become simply a member of a team, you end up dehumanizing people on the other team. And I'm going to give you a very extreme <laughs> example, but I think it emphasizes how teamism can shape thinking. There's a woman uh, who I forgot her name now, a French journalist, who interviewed people who committed the Rwandan genocide. Yeah, this is an extreme example. And so she runs into a guy who had decapitated his neighbor of 25 years because he was Tutsi. And she said, you know, you lived next to this guy for 25 years, you were a friend, what were you thinking when uh, you, know, you chopped off his head with a machete? And he said, at that moment, I wasn't really seeing him as my neighbor. His features got all fuzzy for me, and I saw him as a Tutsi. And so it was sort of dehumanizing. 
And that's um, obviously, again, an extreme example. But in my view, when you get in teams and other teams, and I don't know how much contact in the House there is, but in the Senate, I remember I talked to Evan by the day he announced his uh, retirement, and he said, we've met as a body since I got here 12 years, twice. We met here as a body after 9-11 and Clinton, during Clinton impeachment. There was never a moment when we all talked. And I do think there's been that slow dehumanization. Now, part of it is cyclical. Uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton, who I talked about, was murdered by the vice president. So that's reasonably polarizing. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes in cycles. And I thought we were get coming out of a cycle uh, when Crossfire was canceled and that sort of media world changed. It turned out people didn't like Crossfire because they'd spend half the time listening to the other side. And now they just get to hear their own side. Uh, and, so I, I see no change, no break to it. But I guess, you know, there are things that I think could uh, contribute. Well, Tim Worth, who I ran into um, last week in Colorado, said, you know, when he was in the Senate, when he started, the calendar, the schedule was such that they had three weeks in town and one week home. And so when, since they were not rushing home every Thursday night, they spent more time here, got to know people a little better. Uh, that would be part of it. Redistricting is a small part. But to me, it's a matter of leadership and character. When you have leaders, secure enough to encourage the kind of discussion you mentioned, you will have a Congress that does it. Because in my view... Well, it's, it's a very pragmatic approach. Really. They, they want their prejudice reinforced. And I find that on the scientists. They come to me, they ask me about a scientific question. If I give them the answer, which is scientifically correct, which I wish to do, uh, if it agrees with their prejudices, I'm one of the greatest scientists in the world. If it disagrees with the prejudices, they sort of shake their head and walk away. I really don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, everyone seems to want their prejudices to be dominated without recognizing their prejudices. Yeah, and there's no substitute character for that. I mean, you just have to have a higher loyalty than to short-term political interests. And that's, you know, obviously it strengthens the power of leadership to enforce party discipline. And I will say, watching from the outside, my perception is when I first started covering the House, there were more policy entrepreneurs in the back benches than there were today. That you would hang around people, I remember this guy named Jim Porter from uh, New Jersey, uh, Jack Kemp from New York, and they had weird ideas, good ideas, weird ideas, some on defense policy, some on economics. Frankly, when I started covering it, Newt Gingrich was a junior backbencher, he had a bunch of weird ideas. And then once he became leader, he sort of squelched the possibility of other people like him rising. Um, so. To me, it's that failure of leadership in the culture that's set by the leaders. Who among your colleagues do you keep a file on as far as, uh, you know, like Mr. Thornberry's no, commentators? I'm going to exclude all my New York Times colleagues, because if I mention some and not others, <laughs> lose friends. Um, obviously, I live in the shadow of Tom Friedman. Uh, I went to the Middle East with Tom Friedman. Somebody said, go to the Middle East with Tom Friedman. Like going to the mall with Britney Spears. <laughs> the other town story I tell is um, who is who is Britney Spears? <laughs> Sure, she's sort of like Dinah. 
So, I, you know, let's start with some of the others. I'm, there are people who I think are not party line columnists who objectively give you that view. Um, I look at a guy named Robert Samuelson, writes for the Post. I think he's just tremendously honest. Uh, there's a guy, Fried Zakaria. Uh, Robert Kagan writes for the Post periodically. Um, there's a guy, Stuart Taylor, he used to write the National Journal on legal matters. These are guys you don't know where they're coming from, but you can, you can sort of outsource your brain to them because you trust they're going to look at it honestly. Um, there's a, a Democratic uh, guy at the Brookings Institution named Bill Walston, who I, uh, I always read and think highly of. Uh, so there are people like that. I mean, Charles Crowdhammer's a friend. He's the only columnist I know who can write a column just by thinking. The rest of us need to gather other people's thinking. He can just do it. Um, and so there, there are people of that nature who are just, um, who have the mentality that uh, my job is not to champion liberalism or conservatism. It's just to write, just to be honest with the facts. And there's, there's 